How are you this morning, Helena? I'm good. I was tired in my body yesterday. I was basically sitting in front of my screen from one till 11. In Zoom after Zoom after Zoom and working away. So I was a bit tired. But now I'm good. And you, Caspian, <coughs> besides the cat? <laughs> um, I'm all right. Um, I've been a bit sluggish in the head the past couple of days. Um, but overall, very good. And you, Dominic? Mm. Mr. D. I wouldn't say I'm sluggish, I'm more like a slug. <laughs> I haven't slept that much. I, um, I was very tired yesterday, so I slept in the late afternoon. I just mm. had to crash and then, you know, the evening drew out. And eventually I went to bed at like one which is like three or four hours after when I usually go to bed and I still wake up the same time, and more or less. I had dreams about weird sort of... Yeah, I don't know, like a sort of combination of party and war, you know. Um, <laughs> competing parties and not political parties like party on dude parties kind of special kind of special yeah i think because before i went to bed i was looking at um, the um, battle of poltova which is a obscure business involving uh, the swedish king Karl the something third or the 18th or we didn't have an 18 i think they stopped at 12 or something i think they stopped at 12 mm -hmm. yeah but uh <clears throat> you know at the time the swedes were kind of one of these um expansive world powers well known for their cruelty and uh, were kind of doing quite um hardcore war partying around the, the Baltic Sea. Clashing with the Russians, with the Poles, with the Germans. Anybody who wanted to fight, the Swedes were kind of willing. Was it a, was it a documentary or was it kind of a, a play? Acting? No, it's like um, uh, a movie on one screen, a um, research process on another screen. Um, some notes in my hand. <laughs> Crazy people, you know. Such is life. Did you find out anything vital about the Swedish soul? Well, that's an interesting question. No, I can't say that I found out anything vital about the Swedish soul, but I think it's kind of a, a special arena, a special case to explore, for me anyway. 
since I have been spared this particular blessing or plague or burden. I don't have a Swedish soul. You know. <laughs> I wasn't endowed. I had to apply for mine at the social welfare office. <laughs> I think I had the most Swedish conversation the other day that I've ever had or there ever was. I, I was walking from to and from Loma, so a long, long walk. Um, and I was going on, on the sort of coastline. And all of a sudden, there, there are a couple of people, and, and there's one of those um, um, hage, what do you call them? A field? Uh, yeah, paddock, a field. Yeah, well, um, sort yeah, of... Animals. Fenced were, in. Fenced in. Yeah, so, so there were fences at, bo at both sides, and there was sort of a small <laughs> little alley that you could walk into. Um, and the family turned around and, and looked at me, or, or the father did, and he said, do you want to pass? But in Swedish, I had my headphones on, so I sort of just got them off um, and said, sorry. And he instantly switched to English and said, do you want to pass? <laughs> I said, yeah, sure, and, and went on. <laughs> Still speaking English. <laughs> <laughs> I am just looking at the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to disturb you. <laughs> Very strange interaction. What? Why? Why? <coughs> <coughs> that is very strange. She's so polite. It's like wow. <clears throat> he just put on his angel face. Mr. Cherub. Yes, Mr. Cherub. Oh dear, the cat was there. That didn't uh, taste let, good. Let it, let it stand and, and drag for too long morning coffee. I haven't had any fresh beans, um, coffee, coffee beans. I've had pre... Ground. Pre-ground, pre-grown, pre... Pre-ground. Pre you could just say ground. You could just say ground. Well, I usually already, ground already them. Ground. Grind usually them. You usually grind them, yeah. But they've already been ground, 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 ground. On the ground floor, they've been ground, <laughs> which is a grind. Um, and that doesn't really taste as good. And then I let it drag for for too long, and now it's just bitter. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I thought I might just mention that um, today is the day, you know. Today is the day the teddy bears have their orgie. Orgie time for teddy bears. 
Yeah, they're going to disinaugurate one and re-inaugurate another. Or augurate. Yeah, it's not re-inaugurate, is it? Well, he's the former. The former vice. Mm-hmm. He's the former vice, but that's something else. Yeah, yeah it is the day. Yeah. Now he's chief of vice. Does he fly yeah. Air Force One to Washington? From or is that after the inauguration? Well, it's a hell of a short flight. <coughs> From? He's in uh, like so Delaware or something. I mean, you basically drive there in 15 minutes. Yeah, well, he was getting on a flight. I saw a picture yesterday. Uh, oh, yeah. Well... Like that must be it then. yesterday. But could he already be on the Air Force One? That would be kind of weird. But, it um, would, wouldn't it? Mm. He has to be inaugurated first, then. Maybe he's going to fly over to San Francisco and fetch Kamala. During the inauguration. For the start of the war party. <laughs> Yeah, well, fingers crossed that everything will run smoothly and there won't be lives lost and people hurt and all of that stuff. I can completely agree to, to fingers crossed, but do we believe it, that everything will run smoothly? Is that really a hope that we should have or should we... It's Put the hope. bar, you know, on on a reasonable no. level to all of no. this crazy. No, I'm I'm hoping. So you're saying that because shit is crazy, we shouldn't hope for. Reasonable? We should absolutely hope. That's not what I'm saying. Mm. It was what you were saying. Should we? Hope? No, Actually. not hoping. <laughs> That's Putting what, our expectations that, completely that different. That wasn't thing. what you said. That's what I meant. That's You're not listening story. to me no, as no, a yeah. person. You're listening to my listening. words. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't listen to what I say. Listen oh, to what I mean. Yes. This is so groovy. This is like, you know, deep Trump culture. We can all just talk over each other and <laughs> in, insist that you heard me wrong. <laughs> I didn't lie. <laughs> The thing that I said just became untrue because you interpreted it in the wrong way. I mean, it says with such an earnest face. <laughs> well, I mean, what's it going to be worth if it's not earnest? Not much. That's actually a nice starting point. Truth in the postmodern society. Holy shit. Yeah, well, go ahead, frame it up for us. Let's <clears throat> let's attack a problem that nobody else ever in history has managed to <laughs> not die on the battlefield. <laughs> let's do that. Well, I'm just I just suggested it, so we don't have to. Go ahead. Um. Know what I'm thinking? You know, one one of the one of the biggest insights that I've got this past 
on these past, say, four years, just picking a number. Um, the, this thought was was awoken from from listening to Autumn Flam um, back in back in the days when when he was a reasonable comedian and and sort of reasonable person. And now he's um, what? I would say he's fairly unreasonable. He's still fun to listen to, but he, I, I would absolutely say that he is trying his best to be unreasonable. Um, it gets more listeners. It does. It does. Um, he brought up the point of, of there not being truth in the postmodern society. At all. At all. Or rather, that truth is relative. It's a basic tenet of postmodernism. It is, isn't it? Mm. Um, but it's good that Aaron also hooked onto that one. So Which may not fun. be true, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so that truth is always relative. We, we, need to, we need to put truth, our truth, in relation to something else uh, in order for it to be at all. There is nothing that's innately true. There's no universal truths. Exactly. Mm. Um, and this was, this was quite an interesting idea, I thought. Of, of there not being truth, or if there was truth, what, what would, would that be? Sort of digging into it. Then I started university, and we had a lecturer in uh, pedagogics and education, um, who basically said the same thing. He said that in the postmodern society, there is no truth, which means that your education means nothing at all because you're going to dig into things that are in a postmodern society um, or applied in the postmodern society by people living in a postmodern society which means that everyone's going to be crazy and you're not going to be able to reason with them on this there are going to be clicks and you're going to have to to sort of get your um, education to a level where you can understand and take a side and, and that's basically what, what you're going to have to do. Um, so instead of, of even trying to find a common ground of truth within education of what works or what is, um, he said, well, just, just pick a side, find a side, <laughs> pick it and, and stick to it because to everyone go. else does and it's useless <laughs> not to. <laughs> Oh God, that's really like pragmatism at its best. Sure. Um, it was a very strange, strange time at university. Well, um, sounds like a strange course. It was, it was. Given the topic, um, especially. Mm. Um, and I didn't reflect on that even at the time. Uh, we we sort of just agreed, and I was like, yeah, well, I've I've 
probably it was at the same time where I started talking to Rebecca, who's running a um, how should we put it alternative form of schooling in Mexico. Oh. Is that a? I, well, I was just worried that you were going to say in Sweden, but in Mexico it's okay. Yeah, she's a Swede living and working in Mexico, and I would say yeah. At the time she was running alternative school forms, now yeah. she's really not. Now she's into explorative learning, mm. very unschoolish, if you have any idea of what school is. Yeah. And so I, I basically picked her side because it seemed the most reasonable and it didn't go very well uh, with my <laughs> classmates. You weren't listening to your teacher, were you? <laughs> you picked the wrong side. There were two sides you could pick. You picked a third one. That wasn't true. It was the not, it was not very popular. You know. I mean, the basic premise of democracy, you can vote for whoever you want as long as you vote for the right party. Yeah. Um, okay. Story, so, of, story of my life. Yep. <laughs> so you you backed the wrong horse, and then I had to pay for it. What happens next? From Aaron Flum's statements on postmodernist truths to I think it sort of left the topic because I feel like there there's until now, uh, obviously. Um, because I think there, I think I think the thought of there not being a truth is ridiculous. In most cases, um, I think that that that's what we've been doing with science for all these years. That's 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 what the world is. There, there are some things that that we don't have to put into in relation to something else for them to mm. be true. However, most things need to be put in relation to something else in order to be understood. And those are two completely different things. Mm. Uh, we need to put things into a context of language in order to actually speak about them. Um, it doesn't mean that they change. Um, And I also think that that I, I was listening to to a conversation with um, um, we spoke briefly on this Dominic uh, the other day, but I, I've been listening a lot to a guy called La, Naval Ravikant um, in the past couple of days um, or past couple of weeks. Um, he's an a, among other things angel investor in in Los Angeles. Um, and, and Silicon Valley. Um, but he's also a philosopher. He's written a lot of content on philosophy of, of living. He's been... Um, um, one of those self-help people um, that's sort of low-key. He's, he's a lot more low-key than, for example, Tim Ferriss. But Tim Ferriss has Naval as a mentor, um, that sort of thing. And, and 
he said, lost my train of thought. So postmodern truths and open learning bring you into Naval and his ideas on tech, decentralization, free no, it thought. Was, it was on democracy and oh, yes. voting for No, democracy. on science. That, on that's fact. where I was going. There you go. Um, he, he, Objective he, um, truths. Objective truths. No, well, he, he quite bluntly said that anything that has science in the name of it isn't science. So social science, not a science. Behavioral science, not a science. Physics, uh -huh. science. science. Uh, because if you have to state that it's a science, it's not. Um, that, that was his argument. And, and of course, he, he had a lot more background to it. Mm. So you went hard science. Sorry? Hard science. You know, like very crazy. hard science. Um like blue pill science. <laughs> well I think I think there is something to that, and I think that you know one one of the one of the sorry? No, I'm just yeah. it kinda depends on what you mean by science. Of course. Of course, but um, maybe maybe this this helps to to sort of um, well, one one of the one of the reasons to why I chose my education was a book called Omgiven av Idioter, surrounded by idiots. And you are a behavioral scientist. I mean, that's I your, that was the, <laughs> that was the training. Just to state that. Um, and, and the book sort of covers a theory on, on uh, personalities, um, divides people up into four different categories of personality types, and, and then tells you how to navigate the world based on those four different uh, personality types. And at the time I thought it was brilliant. Um, because it offered a lot of insight into how to navigate people. Um, if I could label someone as blue and then treat them as blue, they would, in fact, behave very blue. Um, which is very practical in, in general. Um, but but then I started university and I realized this this theory that he uses in the book is completely completely uh, unbacked by science. There's no evidence that that it works. It's there's no evidence that there is such a thing as four different personality types um, in the sense that he was describing them. Um, but it still works. If I treat people blue, they inevitably, inevitably become more blue. 
And you know that that's sort of where 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 I landed on on the whole truth thing. That well, it's not true, but but it works, so that's fine. <laughs> the relative truth. There you go. Exactly. As long as I believe it, mm. Santa Claus exists. <laughs> well, that's also a thing in therapy. The the most um, the factor that that's going to have the most impact on your therapy is how much your therapist believes in his or her methods. So you mean that I is have the to most ask my therapist? Yeah. If they believe in what they're doing? And in the tools they're using. And this is science? This is science. Is it social science or is it hard science? <laughs> well, I guess it's social science because it's very social. No, but, you know, that, that's as far as we know. And I mean, if that's, that's the single, um, I don't know, parameter or, or um, point of interest, why even bother with, with having educations on different tools? Because if I believe if if I believe that my tools are are a lot better than, you know, uh, psychologists or or even Dominic's or you know whoever's, I'm going to be quite effective. It should be said that that's not true. the The research done on on that specific topic was between. Uh, psychodynamic uh, therapy and what's the other called in English? Psychoanalytical. Cognitive behavioral yeah, therapy. Cognitive behavioral mm. therapy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> there we go. Some, some well, so one of the, one the of the things that I think when it comes to science as such is that it is so commonly misunderstood to mean if, if science tells this, then it is true. But, but science is more the process of getting, gaining information, knowledge, you know, it's 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 the process. It's not it's not proof of anything. It's just a way to learn, gain information, knowledge. You know, well, this this worked now. This didn't work now. What's the next step? So so it's the process, and I think that's generally really not something that people. Think know or think about even hmm. yeah well i think there's a few sort of difficulties involved um you know that a lot of the things that you take up caspian have um i mean i jokingly say that that uh, most people die on the battlefield of the the postmodern question you know um and it is an extremely hot topic um people get 
really wound up about it. Um, so the the Jordan Peterson phenomenon is very much based on uh, ascribing the problems of the world to postmodernism, for example, that uh, all of the political difficulties experienced in Western societies are basically a, a result of postmodernism. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, that, that uh, there may be some truths uh, in that, that um, some of the issues that, for example, he and many other critics of postmodernism raise um, are observable. You can actually go and, and collect data. You can use scientific method and say, well, you know, uh, this and this and this correlates, but correlation and causation are two completely different things. Um, and, uh, you know, this is just one of the areas that I sort of want to bring up in, in, in the stuff that you, that you talk about, that um, in order to, for me to kind of get a grip on some of these problems, I continuously find that I have to go down lower in the stack. You know, I have to come to terms with philosophy of science and, and uh, what the basic tenets are behind the philosophy of science um, and start to uh, grapple with problems around um, what uh, are these ideas based on, whether they're based on, on Aristotelian, Aristotelian or, or Platonic worldviews, um, <clears throat> but uh, how the way in which we view science, uh, the whole sort of idea of the philosophy of science in the Western world completely excludes science that precedes um, the sort of great period of the Western mind, basically from, you know, 1500 onwards. Uh, and at that time, there's a sort of very specific highlighting of certain intellectual traditions that basically start with, uh, with the Hellenic worldview and then building on that, you know. But prior to that, uh, there are very significant scientific worldviews developed in China, developed in Persia, um, that are not included in uh, the way that, that the, the, the Western paradigm works. And when you're laying out some of these ideas, you know, the, uh, the thought that comes up for me is, is for example, um, the idea of, of Meta theories. Meta theory is very much a, a postmodern um, uh, uh, phenomena, in that one comes to terms with the fact that that if you allow for abstractions of abstractions, you can get a clear idea of systems within systems and get a, a, a far more uh, balanced or nuanced or uh, a harmonious grasp of phenomena that occur simultaneously um, so that it's possible to have uh, these competing truths within a postmodern context to be true, uh, but not necessarily objectively true. And this brings sort of some of the, the crisis of, of um, the, the period that is highlighted since 2016 when, when Trump comes into office and there's this uh, emergence of so-called woke um, 
identitarians or identity politics. I mean, identity politics existed before that. But there's a, a, a sort of blending of different uh, intellectual arenas into creating a world in which, for example, uh, gender is not an object of truth. Um, that they, you know, there's a, a group of people that will say that they are not two biological sexes. And that's just it, that, that gender is a, a, a construct, a social construct. And that's a lot of that sort of line that uh, postmodernism has developed, specifically out of, out of Foucault um, and the... Foucault? Yes, uh, uh, the French philosopher. So a lot of the French school of postmodernism is, is particularly dominant in the, in the way that people think about power and the the constructs of power in society and, and postmodernism is particularly directed at deconstructing power relations and, and revealing them for what they are, that they are, uh, you know, ideas that are applied for um, influence, for ad advantage, for, and, and this is very popular thinking for certain groups within academia. And very often, I mean, why I brought up meta-theories is because, for example, um, the integral uh, world offer the so-called uh, A-qual or A-qual a -qual, uh, uh, model, which means all quadrants, all levels. And it looks at any specific issue from the point of view of whether it's in a subjective or an objective sphere, or whether it's in an individual or... or uh, pluralistic multiple spheres so that we can explore um, uh, objective questions, we can explore systems, we can explore first-person experience, and we can explore uh, more social experiences. And we can explore and experience um, issues or objects or questions in any one of these uh, spheres, but it does not necessarily provide truths about those things, you know. So science uh, has a culture. There is a, 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 a set of cultural precepts uh, within which science operates today. It's not the same as what it was in the 1500s, and it's not the same as what it was in the 1800s. And it will also change, you know. Um, and it's quite a, a complex field to to explore and to sort of, uh, for me to, to, to keep my, my wits about me and maintain some sort of direction. Because in, in, in asking questions like, um, is social science a science? Um, you know, well, it's not because uh, it has to call itself a science. It's not a hard science like uh, mathematics or physics that are, you know, these kind of uh, objectively unquestionably real things. Um, well, I mean, none of that actually matches what we, what we know about our agreements about science. What we really know about our agreements about science is that we have models to explain things. They're not objectively real, you know. Um, and yes, there are agreements as to what we rely on. And those agreements depend on uh, certain methods that you you discover something, you develop the data around it, you create hypotheses, and you 
you present your work to your peers for evaluation. Um, and there are specific rules around this uh, that are agreed rules. And much of this has come into question in extremely strong ways in the last uh, few years, you know. And one of them is that science is a, in general, including mathematics, science is a white supremacist, uh, paternalistic, patriarchal form of power, uh, abuse of power. And they are, yeah, like, ciao, see you, that's it, I'm so done with science. No more science for me. Isn't it a little bit like the, the bird schooling problem? That, that's what it come up, comes up for, for me. Um, something um, Taylor brings up in Anti-Fragile. Um, and I think you, you can probably cite this better than I can, Helena. Well, I won't fight anything, but, but just so people know, the bird schooling is his, his um, thought on that is that there are professors at universities like trying to teach birds how to fly because they know the theory behind why they fly and how they can fly and, you know, the forces required for liftoff and whatnot. But birds really fly anyway. They really don't need this. And Ooh. they flew long before any professor figured out how it's possible for them to fly. Um, so he's that's one of his sort of stances on why academia is... Blah. Uh, really. And you're saying that basically I'm just um, teaching birds to fly and framing the problem in this way. <laughs> we all know that if you fall down the stairs, it hurts. <laughs> That's objective truth. You don't need science for that. I don't mean to say that you do exactly that, but, but I think a lot of us do. And I think, I think that to a large extent is what we're doing to society with science. So, yeah. can I just, yesterday, me and Dominic were in a Zoom session, you can say, and one of the things that I brought up there reminds me of this. So, I was explaining or telling Dominic about Benjamin Sander in, um, like, he had a workshop, there's an online clip of this where he's doing what he does, which is sort of both be self-help guru-ish, but also um, inspire people, or rather try to get people to taste classical music, right? So he brings in this 
young woman, um, a pianist, a skilled pianist, and invites her to sit down. And she starts to play the Moonlight Sonata, which is a piece that most people know. And she plays it the way it's played, the way you hear it being played. And everybody's politely clapping. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, excellent job and well done and all of that. And he says, and now... I'm going to show you how the Moonlight Sonata is actually supposed to be played. And he just breaks it down in a way that by the end has people enthusiastically standing on their feet, just wow, you know, tears, because he opens up this piece in a way that, I don't know, it just, he opens the piece so that you can see more of what is there. I won't say all of what is there, but much, much, much more than what she was showing. She was showing this closed little Moonlight Sonata, here you go, well-contained, and he just opens it up in a way that makes it astonishing. And I would say that that is what I would like more of in the world but I see the other I see that okay let's wrap this piece up this piece of information this theory these fact whatever it is N neatly here you go I can sort of hand it over to somebody and they see it and it's well defined and everything but what what I would like for science to be what I think actually science is the scientific method is that other thing. It is the opening up of all of these possibilities of what things could be. Um, and maybe that's just because I'm into that, but it, it kind of thrills me to have these, this, you know, unboxing is a popular thing on YouTube. This is a type of unboxing that you can't actually sort of film that easily, but it's, there's something to it. It's like, oh, because it also tells me that if he can do that to the Moonlight Sonata, which is one of the most played classical piano pieces, what else is there that can be unboxed? Um, so I don't know how that relates really, but mm. there you go. Well, I think it relates well. I don't, I don't know about this phenomenon about unboxing, but I'm guessing that it's kind How? of like influencers or, you know, any one of these buzzwords. You've got to get out of the box. So now we've made... No, no it's even worse. It is... Mm. Unboxing is I order something and I get a box and then I film myself opening the box and pick up my new sweater or oh, wow. olive yeah. oil or, you know, whatever. It's, mm. uh, it's actually unboxing things okay, that so you've we, ordered. Okay, so we're still so in the box. We just... You're, still, you're very much in the box, yes. The box, yeah. This is like um, yeah. sort of um, uh, monetized narcissism. I ordered myself a mirror that's got my image preloaded. And now I'm going to open my box and take it yeah. out. <laughs> yes, 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 that's yeah. the one. Okay, well, 
Um, I'm not sure how the the the, the Moonlight Sonata piece, uh, the the example relates to unboxing, um, <clears throat> but uh, you know, I, I think in 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 the realm of music, there's this this is a, not an uncommon discussion. Um, so there's there's a lot of of competition you can say about who's right about what things are supposed to sound like. So there's no recordings of Bach um, as Bach. You know, there's no recordings of Bach sitting in a, a church in um, Leipzig or wherever, um, running through uh, some other uh, uh, mass or, uh, you know, um, that's not available. <laughs> and I mean, maybe the most sort of uh, published uh, the, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the public eye um, kind of catfight around this arose around Glenn Gould, the, the Canadian pianist. As Gould became really famous and really popular playing Bach and playing uh, Goldman variations and so on. And people were just saying like, this is not how Bach is supposed to be played. Uh, this is bad, you know, this is populist. This is like um, candy, you know, when we should be serving, um, you know, something far more sophisticated and so on and so on. Um, and Gould is kind of accused of being a sentimental romantic um, by hardliners, you know, sort of saying that that's not how things are supposed to be played. And there are other examples of this, like, uh, you know, if you listen to, uh, I think she's called Simone Dinnerstein, um, who I think actually is also Canadian. Um, she has very interesting interpretations of the same pieces, you know, and they, um, they're really quite special in the way that they interpreted. But then there's also people who do uh, Bach in other formats, you know, in, in other genres. So there's people that play uh, jazz Bach or, you know, um, which is like, it's like Satanism for uh, conservative classical people. How the fuck can you, you know, run Bach tunes, you know, with, uh, uh, I don't know, there's a, for example, a, a, a very well-known um, xylophone player, um, uh, a jazz player that um, Milt, Milt Jackson, Milt Jackson does a whole album of, of Bach, you know, in a jazz idiom. Um, so which one is right? Which one is true? Is there a, a truth in this? Um, and it, it's, you know, it stretches across arrangements, across interpretations, it stretches across instrumentation. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's so much, uh, um, how should one put it, uh, um, tension uh, in the discussion. And either you can take the view that uh, there is an objective truth in how this is supposed to be heard, or you could see this as something that's enlightening. It opens up possibilities. It sort of offers uh, a range of experiences that says, well, 
Yeah, I kind of get the point, but I don't really like that. I prefer that one, even though it's not supposed to, in, in, in inverted commas, sound like that. I quite like that. Okay, well, that's interesting because it probably uh, gives me something to learn about myself rather than necessarily about classical music as such. And these are arenas in which there are conflicts with science. You're not supposed to be able to um, have personal experiences as uh, truth in science. This is not good. You need to be able to ground your observations in data and to confirm them, to test them. So your observation may be interesting, um, but you need to develop a hypothesis around it and develop data that um, disproves your hypothesis. That's the scientific agreement, you know. Exactly. Um, Which I don't I think, think is well known either. That. No, it probably isn't well known. Um, and it means that, that, you know, in that equal model, people just sort of swap to whatever quadrant suits uh, the argument at a particular time, um, partly because uh, the emotional investment in the particular conversation is so high um, that there's very little perspective involved. And you see this in, in I sent you a, a link on propaganda, on the uh, propaganda teacher Crispin, I think he's called Mark Crispin. Um, and Crispin makes such fantastic uh, uh, points about how we experience information um, and how to uh, at least attempt to identify propaganda. And he makes this really amazingly prescient and salient point that the whole value of this is to recognize propaganda in the stuff that you agree with. Because the stuff that you don't agree with, you always experience as propaganda. So basically, the, the, the difficulty there with relative truths, um, if there is not that uh, sort of reflective uh, position that, 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 that can be activated almost intentionally or automatically uh, to say, well, you know, this particular relative truth suits me really well. I feel very comfortable with that. And it's probably fucking wrong. You know, it's probably the idea of it is probably based on propaganda mechanisms that make me feel that this is right. And it does not exclude that the other also has equal weight of rightness, of truth, of objective, uh, uh, observable phenomena that are valuable, that are valid. When just to link back to where we started with today's the day, it's the 20th of January um, 21, as we're recording this. I've, I've listened to podcasts and I've read blog posts and, and posts and discourse forums that I'm in, etc. About about what's been going on in the US with Trump supporters and, and the, the, you know, 
what happened at the Capitol last week and stuff, but or the week before. And it's like I can, it's like I, I sit here in Sweden and I observe it and I think as long as everybody is just, you know, out to convince the other that I'm the one who's right and you're the one who's wrong, not a lot will happen. But if I can get curious about this is my rightness. This is what feels really right in me, in my body. How can you feel that this is so wrong? And your rightness, what you feel is right in your body, is so wrong in me. Wow. How interesting that is. How is that possible? What can, you know, it's like, can we at least just, can we together try to at least just get one level down on that to see, you know, and, and start to dig into that oh what a different conversation that might be but no i'm out to convince you that you're wrong okay well that rarely works let's put it that way well it works in some ways um when you when you try and convince me that I'm wrong, um, it might just uh, reaffirm how right I am to my mind. It works really well. So if ever I'm in doubt about, uh, for example, if I'm a, a hardcore Marxist, all I have to do is go to um, some free marketeering libertarians and say, you guys really should believe in Marxism and they'll present all the arguments that emotionally make me feel completely ill. Um, and I'll know that Marx is the truth. Yep. And I mean, that's, that's a little bit about what, you know, what political debates are about too. Right? Just this, you know, it's never been about getting people on the other side to come come on to my side. It might be about swaying the people who are on the fence, but it's more about getting the people who are on my side, on my team, uh, in my corner, to feel, yes, he's so right, mm. this is so true, this feels so good in me. Mm. Well, I think it's hard to assess in the place where we are, where there's such strong polarization. Hard to assess what? Well, whether that is true, you know. Um, when I was listening to um, uh, a guy called Larry Cudlow, who is uh, Trump's economic advisor um, and has worked in uh, that role in the White House for like, you know, 30, 40 years on and off. Um, and he says this really interesting thing very suddenly during the, the interview. He says, um, the best Republicans are former Democrats. 
and you know it's sort of uh, what um, yeah and he runs off a, a whole list of people um, who change over from the American Democratic Party to the, the Republican Party in the course of their careers. Um, and uh, I, I can't think of the, 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 the names straight off, you know, but I mean, he mentions, for example, that um, people like uh, uh, John Kennedy, Reagan, um, a, a huge number of them, all embody these particular values around capitalism, about capitalism as uh, the primary truth on which we base our liberal society. The society of tolerance, of uh, diversity, etc., etc., has got to be based on uh, uh, capitalism, free trade, um, low taxes, uh, low regulation, um, you know, that these are things that, that make the good life possible and that there are a huge number of, of examples of Republicans who used to be in the, the Democrat camp, um, conservative Democrats, but nonetheless Democrats that eventually swap over to the Republican Party and become quite successful at it. And this sort of tension of values, regardless of whether it's in uh, the, the, the United States or anywhere, anywhere else, is, is, is observable. And I think for uh, people in, 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 in our generation, Helena, there's a different experience of it because we've grown up in a world in which there have been uh, good examples of conversations, of quite civil exchanges of people on, on opposite sides of a, of a political divide, uh, you know, exchanging ideas, talking about things, uh, wanting to find uh, ways in which to actually manage the governance of a society in which not everybody thinks the same thing. Um, but that's a long way from where we are today. It's hard to discern those, um, those experiences in the, in the, in the, the form of public discourse that we that we are offered, where most everything is you're wrong and I'm right, and there's very little offered in terms of, of historic perspective, of cultural context, of uh, uh, theoretical framework, of uh, uh, philosophical ethos. None of that is really available. Um, there's this basically rhetoric. And it's difficult rhetoric, you know, it's like um, COVID. You use uh, false dichotomies like saving lives versus the economy, um, where neither of the ends of the, these dichotomies are actually sustainable, reasonably, intellectually. If you unpack them, you find that there are so many nuances that uh, it's absurd to use them as these, these polar opposites. They're just not true, they're just not effective as, as a, a means of discussion, but they don't work in the context of um, unboxing. You know, you've got to have a finished product to take out of the box and say, this is where you push the button and it says, uh, fire Trump, you know, or uh, whatever. 
and keeps repeating that. It just keeps repeating that. It doesn't concern itself at all with a sort of uh, a spectrum of field effects that are affecting the way that you're thinking and feeling and, 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 and ingesting propaganda. I'm just going to let pop the cat in because he's screaming. See? I got usurped by a cat. You did. Mm. You did. He's wet. But, you know, since um, that's where we're at with the cat, I'm going to go and fetch coffee. There you go. I'm going to go get a blanket. Everybody left. And I might as well, too. Ugh. Are you enjoying your flight, sir? <laughs> it's very comfortable, thank you. Would you like another chocolate? Yes, please, and a hot towel. Maybe that's what one should do when, when the pandemic is over, start an airline. She's back. I'm back, but I have boiling, so or on to boil, so mm. it will disappear when that one is done. It's not yet. Cool. So solutions, you know, out of the box. They're like out of the box problems. I think I saw there was there was a campaign before I don't think it was the last election but the election before that here in Sweden so it has to have been 2012 When was the last one? 
No, 2014, because we had an election 2018. Yeah. So I think it was before the election 2014. Um, and the, the party leader of the left party, um, I can't remember his name, Kostat. Uh, Jonas Kostat. And the party leader of the center party, or, or really, at least the last time I checked, the, the most liberal party in Sweden, um, Anilav, went on a tour together. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but, but they went they went to, to a bunch of places together to have public conversations yeah. and, and answer questions together and, and sort of talk about where, where they actually agree and where they disagree and why they disagree. Yeah. And I never went to see them, but, which I'm quite sad about, but, but I've heard that it was a really nice thing that they did. Mm. Um, talking about having civil conversations across party lines. Mm. Those two parties and those two representatives of the parties mm. are probably the people that are furthest apart in Swedish politics, except the, the Swedish Democrats. Um, mm. Or at least were at the time, should be mm. said. Because uh, parties have been moving further right. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I really do think that's that's on a path to solution, at least. Um, yeah, I mean, in Sweden, there are these. Uh, uh, how should one say, projects, um, for example, run by public service radio or TV, uh, where you can, um, you can, you know, put your name on a list to participate in difficult conversations that are um, uh, broadcast around a particular issue, you know, and, and in the conversation you'll meet somebody who has exactly the sort of diametrically opposite view to what you have. And, um, we don't like conflict here. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, isn't that's kind of where it, the the I need to convince you something sort of that is on the route to conflict, and if we want to avoid that, like picking curiosity instead is a is a you know, which is what I hear you say, Caspian, that that trust, death and love, you know, it's like that's what they're offering in a sense. They're offering a space for people to come and be curious about what will these two be on stage together? How will that work? Will they be kind and civil towards each other? Or will they be, you know, throwing punches and what might I learn? You know, it's like if, if there's curiosity, and it reminds me of this other thing that I know the library in, in Malmö have been doing and probably other libraries and hopefully around the world where you can, you know, at, at given events, there's the possibility to borrow a human. 
So you can borrow a nun and a gay person and someone who survived uh, Auschwitz and, and you, you know, any, anything, a young one, an old one, you know, it's like, and, and just sit down. And, and, and if you go into one of those, I'm right. It's like, you know, that won't be much of an hour. But if you go in with a curious mind, wow, what might happen? Mm. So as for solutions, I think curiosity as an as a like highly um, influential um, factor, you know, seems for me very very vital. And curiosity is 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 really I would say if I generalize heavily and give you a bit of my truth not something that we cultivate on the contrary in kids we we quite deliberately knock it out of them because it would be really hard to have a classroom of 30 people if everybody was super curious you know it's much easier if they're kind of blasé and just you know spending time um, so we're not, it's not a value, it's not a skill, it's not a skill that we're, we're, you know, helping people develop. No, we're possibly actively disencouraging it. Yes. Also amongst adults. Yes. So, I mean, that curiosity, uh, uh, attitude um, is not really um, something that we admire or, or value. Um, it's, it's more often the case that um, loyalty is valued. And these are really interesting sort of arenas for me in the, in, in the liberal Western world that it's become a, a place where if you're going to be curious about what happened during the Trump administration, um, if you're going to be curious about what happened at the Capitol last week, if you're going to be curious about Biden's administration, um, there's stuff in there that doesn't match the public narrative. And it puts you as a person in the arena where you're forced into um, yeah, the, the preference falsification that we spoke about some time ago, I think I attributed it to Cass Sunstein, but it was wrong. It's actually um, someone else, a um, Turkish-American or a Lebanese-American, whose name I forget right now. But um, the point being that if in, a, uh, in, in, in the information ecology that we exist today, um, if I make it clear, and I mean, this is also my personal experience uh, with the, for example, the, when, when Trump got elected. Um, and uh, at that time, I was still using Facebook. Um, and I was quite, you know, adamant that there was simply no ways that for me, the dichotomy of um, never Trump. So whoever else is good is acceptable to me. That was just 
morally and ethically totally reprehensible to think like that, particularly since uh, it was going to be uh, Hillary Clinton, who's uh, I'm with her uh, kind of world. And Jesus, did people really go at me? And I don't mean just strangers, you know, people that I'm that at the time I was friends with, just said, I don't want to be friends with somebody that's pro-Trump. And I said, but I'm not pro-Trump, I'm pro-thinking. And I don't think that it's okay to just emotionally give yourself over to the so-called lesser of two evils. Um, you know, uh, that's not good enough. You really have to do better, you know. Yeah, but that's where we are now. Yeah, but that's where you've pretty much been from the beginning. That's why you get to where you are now. It's like a performative truth. You keep repeating the thing and in the end it's, it actually becomes reality, you know. Yeah, and you're also solving, solving problems using the tools that got you into the situation of the problem. Yeah, just bolting on stuff. Mm. And I think in most uh, of these, you know, topics in the news around um, the last year, around COVID, around uh, the Trump administration and so on, there are endless variations on this theme that there's, there's stuff where as soon as you become curious, it gets really unpleasant, you know, and, and, and people get deplatformed and cancelled and so on. Um, not because they're saying the wrong things, but because they're actually asking the wrong questions and highlighting issues that are really, really unpleasant, that are really, really unpleasant with, with really devastating consequences. Stuff that's difficult, stuff that's nuanced, you know. Um, that requires more than, you know, they, they, they require that uh, national tour of conversations for people to have long-form conversations to explore and be curious about how are you actually thinking about this issue, immigration or taxation or personal freedoms or whatever, um, and allowing space to to really lay out what it is that you're thinking as opposed to um, you know, just in the news, uh, that's wrong, um, that's proto-fascist, uh, yeah, but you guys are neo-Marxist. Um, end of conversation, you know, who you, who you going to go with? You want the proto-fascist or you want the neo-Marxist? And neither of those accusations are really like objectively true, they nuanced realities, they, uh, you know, they require time and engagement and a certain degree of at least intellectual intimacy. Of being curious, of being like allowing yourself to think differently. And coming back to science, this is, this is really Karl Popper's idea, Popper being the sort of um, Mr. Science, you know, Popper's uh, philosophy of, of, of science box is the one that is most broadly accepted, you know. Um, and, and Popper's basic premise is that whoever has a, 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 an opinion different to yours, has an a, a, a explanation different to yours, before you start presenting, um, uh, uh, you know, 
um, rebuttals, you should have their argument down. You should have listened to it inside out so well that you could argue it better than they can. Hmm. But that isn't what we're seeing, though, is it? <laughs> no, what a waste of time. So if he is Mr. Science, you know, why isn't this what we're seeing then? Well, because, you know, the world moves on. It's, uh, the, uh, the, the, we're complex, uh, you know, adaptive beings. But we have... Has, uh, when was Popper? When did he live? Well, 20th century. Um, so not that recent. Or, I mean, not that long ago, I mean. Yeah, I mean, that treatise is published, I don't know, 60 years ago, something like that. Because has it ever been like that? And and then I'm I'm looking at other scientific worldviews or cultural, mm. you know, not just Western. Mm. Um, well, it's definitely a both-and answer. Because, mm -hmm. yes, of course it's been like that, but it's also not been like that at the same mm -hmm. time everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the Greek philosophical mm -hmm. tradition involves lots of these discussions, mm -hmm. you know. Because um, that's what I was sort of... That's what popped up in my mind, but kind of hazy. Yeah. But there's always been more or less simultaneously a parallel stream of extremism um, in any field that you get to mention. It doesn't have to be religious. Um, but um, And this particular sort of, uh, you know, setup of dichotomous ideas that are in conflict with one another um, I mean, some people would say that that's the basic tenets of, of, of power, you know, that um, the church creates Satan because otherwise there's, there's, there's not that much to uh, uh, motivate people to believe in, you know. But so the, the, the lack of of um, encouragement for, for curiosity and or the, the actual discouragement of curiosity. And I think your, the, the people, people's reaction to you, you on Facebook before Trump, um, Dominic, where it's like, oh, that's some uncomfortable questions, like come off it. And, and you, you kind of, you throw the first punch, like quite reactively to just, I don't want, I don't want that discomfort. I don't want to be in that sort of space of the unknown of, of all kinds of things that I have a hard time 
seeing or grasping or understanding or wanting and and just and and I was thinking about this because that's been a topic of the past few days in in various conversations that I've had that like not necessarily being comfortable being in discomfort (laughs) but but kind of being able to be in discomfort. Like, I can stand here because I know that it's not dangerous, it won't kill me. It's, it's like, and, and I might, well, once I get out of this sticky, whatever it is, I will have gained new perspective, new insights, Uh, new questions um, so that there's so that I I've you know I've come to value the the value of discomfort and and totally throwing this out into another arena that we've been in many times I think that's one of the reasons why there's also now so many people doing, or that might be one of the results of so many people doing cold bathing. You know, you drop into zero degree water, you know, just above freezing. As lovely as it is, it's really not lovely as well. (laughs) You know, it is that both Um, and it is lovely and it's fucking cold and it's great you know it's like it is like the epitome of of this you know staying in and with the discomfort and i see people trying that on and it makes me go "Hmm, i wonder you know what's the next area or arena in their life where they will be then more willing to stay in the discomfort because they have grown to come to enjoy this particular um, uh, shade or nuance of of comfort or discomfort. Hmm. And there's some hope there and I kind of like that. You're throwing hope, you're throwing cold water on hope here. <laughs> I am, I am. Freezing cold water. Freezing cold water. And, you know, it's, and it, it's, it's again, all quadrants, all levels. I was doing a two and a half minute cold shower just before we started here. And I do that and have done that now for a couple of months. And I can notice that I'm, you know, it's like my breathing is relaxed. My body, I kind of dance when I do it because I'm in a shower. So I, you know, so I move as I'm doing there. But I can also see the difference in when my mind like really doesn't like the cold and when my mind thinks, oh, this is nothing. So... The level of discomfort, I can breathe as calmly as anything while my brain is thinking, fuck, this isn't really nice and sort of be chattering. And, and other times I can breathe as calmly as ever and my brain is just 
completely zen, right? So, so my abil- I, I, I withstand the discomfort regardless. But there's different levels of me of where the discomfort is more apparent than not. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's nuanced there too. Mm. Um, but again, I think it, you know, it's a two and a half minute master class uh, every morning in a sense, right? Priming me for, for other discomforts that come up during the day where, where it's like, okay, I know I can stand this for a couple of minutes. I'm good here. Yeah, and possibly there is that, uh, I, I almost said stoic element, but I'm, I want to withdraw that, you know, just remove that from the record. Um, but that, uh, I mean, we do call it discomfort, not comfort. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's this uh, economic theory around, you know, um, not 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 accepting the the marshmallow uh, and and delaying the 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 comfort of the marshmallow because yeah. later on there's there's definitely advantages from um, from saving it for later um, but the the insight about um, that putting yourself in situations that stretches um, your sort of spectrum of abilities um, is definitely, uh, you know, going to have a good return on investment. And possibly in, in surprising ways, you know, that uh, you might be able to better sit through writing a paper on cultivating hydrangeas um, just because uh, you take these other sort of things in hand, you make, uh, you, you, you put yourself in a, a position of authority, um, you, you make yourself sovereign over your, your immediate environment and your senses and so on. And I think just that basic experience of, of self-awareness is, is less common than one would imagine. Mm. That at best, uh, life is physiological for about an incredibly large uh, part of the, the, the human populace. That there's a, an, an animal-like quality to life that's also observable in the sort of question of, of propaganda, that if something makes you feel uncomfortable, you move along. And that knowledge, which does come out of social science with really good uh, data underneath it is is continuously employed in social media platforms, in uh, news, in you know whatever uh, arena of governance we work with, um, because it's effective. So calling uh, the people in the capital violent rioters, uh, you know, um, is going to create a certain feeling in people. It, it doesn't um, generate sympathy or empathy. 
but calling them uh, free speech activists um, has a completely different effect, you know. Um, and that's been really clear in, in, in uh, particularly in the US over the whole summer, the whole uh, Black Lives Matter demonstration period, um, you know, is very much, oh, this is really positive. Uh, these are good values. Um, we should support these people. Um, don't, don't let up, you know. But these are people who are burning courthouses um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> doing damage to public property, uh, much like uh, the people at the Capitol. Um, and applying, you know, your morning shower to the news, I think is a, a really great idea, you know, where you can just ease into the discomfort of it and think, okay, well, here I am. Um, I'm not my body. I'm not my feelings. I saw in the Swedish press today, um, and this is the public service, um, there's a, a front page, uh, I mean, this is the net version, there's a front page article that says, um, sect expert, uh, uh, Trump's uh, followers, you know, um, that this is, the, this is how the circle closes. Um, they all, they all believe this because they're in a sect, you know. Um, and this sort of series of uh, Russell conjugations. So we have here an expert. Um, okay, wow, you know. Um, and she says that um, it's a sect. So all of the people that were at the Capitol um, are a sect. Okay, so... Um, you know, what is, what is the basis of her uh, uh, knowledge here? Well, she herself was rescued from the Moonies sect. Wow, they were really bad guys. So, you know, that would mean that what she's saying is true. It's absolute fucking rubbish. You know, it's just like complete speculative nonsense that is pure propaganda. But it's really uncomfortable. And, and you know, getting curious about the capital involves being confronted by that. Here's an amazingly wide spectrum of groups that pitch up for quite different reasons, you know, and are organized in ways that actually is terrifying to governments because this is, this is the Iraq war, you know. This is like uh, uh, after the Americans arrived, there's a hundred different counterinsurgents groups in Iraq um, with one common enemy, uh, but they don't all agree and they really fuck the Americans up. And this is a similar thing that now happening uh, internally, which is probably why we're going to see a flood of propaganda on domestic terrorism managed by, you know, this icon of liberalism, Joe Biden. Well, Joe Biden wrote the Patriot Act. He's about to write Patriot Act 2. Nobody knows that and nobody wants to know that because it's really uncomfortable. His entire cabinet is lined with war hawks who've basically been running the playbook for uh, color revolutions, for invasions, for bombings. Um, 
it's an appalling spread of people. I mean, for me, it's like, uh, what's it over? Hillary Clinton referred to the deplorables, and I realized that the opposite side are the appallings. You know, you've got the the, de <laughs> the deplorables and the appallings, and uh, now it's the appallings <laughs> turn. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do other than laugh or cry? What can you do yeah. other than laugh? Well, especially if you sort of... If you're not going to buy into this shit, that there's some sort of objective truth in it um, and become curious, then it's definitely easier to laugh. But is it true? Or is it just postmodern? Kasper, have you um, come across the uh, arena called metamodernism? Very briefly. I've heard the word, I okay. haven't understood it. I don't think anybody Please. understands it, but there's a lot of people that are trying to, you know, that are... So what to, does it mean? What is uh, it? Uh, it would be absurd for me to sort of try and say that I know what metamodernism means. Um, but I think broadly speaking, there's kind of two... two um, parallel uh, fields, one cultural and one political. And the political metamodernism is, is uh, mostly centered around a Swedish um, social scientist uh, who's written two, two books on metamodern politics. And metamodern politics is based on completely different premises to um, modernist and postmodernist politics. Um, so bringing in what in, sense? Well, bringing into the political arena things like feeling, you know, um, that uh, the, the mental health of the nation needs to be a, a political issue, for example. Um, and I think they have six uh, specific uh, basic tenets around uh, metamodern politics. And then the cultural side, I mean, the, the general idea is that, um, you know, the, the pre-modern leads to the modern, leads to the post-modern, leads to the metamodern. And that the, the metamodern in this particular meta-theoretical framework would imply uh, including and transcending the model before that, the same way that postmodernism supposedly would include modernism and present something completely new. Mm. And just that statement is, is you know, up for quite a strong uh, debate as to whether metamodernism actually uh, includes and transcends postmodernism. So the integral Ken Wilber scene would be quite sort of clear that 
metamodernism as a as an idea um, is promising, but has not yet achieved that um, step of presenting something new. But I thought you might be interested to to dip in and look at things. There's a there's a whole sort sure. of range of different offerings. People talking about peer politics, but also talking about you know taxonomies of knowledge uh, of um, psychology, psychological worldviews, developmental worldviews, um, you know, uh, as alternatives to this kind of cul-de-sac of either relational or universal truths. I thought I might mention that one of the, the issues around the, the truth question uh, that becomes really difficult is around institutions. So one of the sort of um, bases of science is that uh, you really should trust and believe in institutions and experts. And the sort of left-leaning world will speak about uh, a growing anti-intellectualism by which they mean libertarians that don't accept the the views of experts mm. so the sort of um if you think of climate change the the rally cry of climate change is you should believe the scientists um or the science is clear etc etc and the People who are skeptical about that are saying that the um, the culture of uh, postmodernism in institutions is one of the factors that leads to a very, very unfortunate tendency within institutions to focus on um, not so much on science, um, in fact, to uh, focus more clearly on um, uh, the culture of the institution so that you should believe in the expert because it's an expert rather than uh, deal with the problems of their work. And we in the middle of, uh, you know, from that point of view, from the, the, um, the point of view of, of more uh, right-leaning politics, libertarians, etc., etc., of a, a very, very deep um, institutional crisis in which even truths that objectively have been established have become completely without value, um, partly because loyalty to institutions has made those problems to be relative um, to context, to power play, um, I'm not sure that this is that strange, you know, when you read uh, Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince, um, these are things that are already in play a hell of a long time ago. They're not necessarily uh, modern or postmodern, um, but certainly they're difficult to, to assess. Uh, so, for example, with, with COVID, 
um, there has steadily been a, a, a sort of quite um, unrestricted confusion of issues that uh, sort of stretch between what the, the, the virus is and what the political field is in which it occurs. Um, it's very difficult to discern, um, you know, what is, what is a, a disease or a public health issue. You know, eventually politics becomes the public health issue. Um, and recently there's been uh, made a, a big deal about that the uh, World Health Organization has been allowed to um, examine evidence at the Wuhan uh, Virology uh, Institute. Uh, supposedly to determine whether or not the, the virus actually came from there. And when you unpack some of the stuff, um, again, if you become curious about it, it gets really, really uncomfortable. I mean, it's like not stuff that you can make any conclusions from, um, but it's definitely a rabbit hole, you know, and that rabbit hole has lots of really, really uncomfortable details. Um, partly, for example, that uh, the, the uh, head of public health in the USA, Anthony Fauci, um, Fauci headed up uh, the process by which uh, COVID was um, identified or uh, um, through uh, I mean, it's a, it's a long political trail, but basically what happens is that the, the United States um, vote on a moratorium of studying viruses um, and they outsource the problem because of the dangers involved. They send the problem to China, to Wuhan, under the guidance of the exact same people who are now examining whether or not there's a problem or not. Well, they're, they're, you know, they're experts. we got to exactly. believe them. Yeah. And so it becomes a problem that, I mean, even if these people went and uncovered objective information that was objectively true, the fact that there's such low trust in these institutions, not without good reason, that people would ignore it completely or, or dismiss it precisely because it comes out of those institutions and because the culture of maintenance of power with institution has become so glaringly obvious to be the motivating factor um, that um, it's impossible to, to know whether what they're producing is actually objectively true or not, since there's uh, an obvious game theoretical motivation for them to be doing whatever it is that they're doing. Which, again, points to this interesting juxtaposition of curiosity versus loyalty. Mm. What mm. those, it's like, ooh, that's a feel that we could dive into sometime. Because they're, in, in some sense, It feels as if what's wished for, required, encouraged is that being an either or 
you're either loyal or mm. you're curious. Exactly. You cannot be both. And it applies in so many fields, you know, if you go into human rights, for example, that either you're on the side of the West or you're against human rights. You know, this is Bush's formulation. Either you, you're for us or you're for the terrorists, so you're the terrorists. And then people laughed, you know, and said, well, Bush is stupid. He's like, um, you know, he's an alcoholic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and suddenly this is really, really widespread and evidently predates Bush, you know, by any number of decades. That this is like part of, of what we do in the West or, or this is the way we, we, we perceive the world. This is how we work. But we do tell ourselves we don't. That we're liberal, that we are, you know, open, that we're curious, that we, we examine the evidence. 